After it's over, dusted off his hands, made sure all the tobacco was in the water. Looked at me and says, Papa, this is the only thing that makes me feel more human. Boom, that hit me good, man. That was like, whoa. What this kid told me was ancient. As a human, he's talking, this is the only thing that makes me feel more human of the land. Welcome, everyone, to another uh, episode of the Co-Management Common Show. And uh, very grateful that you would uh, tune in again and take the time to learn about co-management. Like I often say, I believe that if you're taking this time to care and learn about co-management, it does mean that you care about reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in Canada. And today's guest is really exceptional. I first heard about Clifford Paul because of the work he was doing in moose management in Unamagi. He's been uh, doing that now for the past 19 years. And as a part of my work in Northern Labrador, the Torngat Wildlife and Plants Co-Management Board was starting to think about introducing moose management to Nanatsibut because of the slowly increasing numbers and with a caribou hunting ban in place people had become interested in harvesting them. So we invited uh, Clifford to uh, come to Labrador and share all of his experiences with our co-management board and to learn from the successes that they were having. So enjoy the listen and you'll notice that this podcast is really a collection of stories. Clifford does an exceptional job making many relevant points about co-management, different knowledge systems, what it means to be Elnu, and what it means to be living with respect for the land and much more, all through a beautiful narrative of his life experiences and the teachings that have been passed on to him. I hope you enjoy and I look forward to you coming back again soon. Take care. Clifford, it's really great to be chatting with you again today. It was just a few short months ago we crossed paths uh, in Unamagi at the conference that was there. And I'm really grateful that you would take the time to come on the co-management show and talk about all the work that you've been doing with Moose in particular. And I know it's probably going back around eight or nine years or more now when we invited you up to Labrador to share your experiences and what you were doing because it was seen as a real leadership example in how you were taking the reins of moose management there in Nunamagi. But why don't we introduce yourself to the listeners who may not be familiar with you? Thanks, Jamie. You know, I've been at this role, I guess, professionally now for 19 years. And it's been a long run and it's a great gig because it can be controversial it can't you're you're leading some pretty rough discussions in our own communities but it doesn't feel like work you know it's something that I naturally progressed into and it's an incredible run working with UINR my name is uh, Clifford Paul I'm from the First Nation community of member two I am a proud father of five adult children and 11 grandkids and the kids are getting old i forgot their ages i kept saying 31 to 41 i think they're like 32 to 42 now (laughs) Uh, i have grandkids age 4 to 20 and spiritually my name is running grizzly bear man and i come from the Mi'kmaq ancestral district homelands known as unamagi which represents cape breton but doesn't translate to cape breton Unamagi translates to the land of everlasting fog. And if you spend time in Unamagi, you get up early, you see the fog coming off these low-lying areas, the harbor, the harbors, the rivers, and the swamplands. It's a good old time. That's the land of the everlasting fog. That's us. So, you know, I grew up on construction sites with my dad. I worked very hard labor as a child. At a time, there was no child labor laws and no... And back then, there was no minimum wage. I helped my dad put food on the table and keep us in nice clothes, you know? So I grew up with that. The 
1960s, early 1970s, Sydney, Nova Scotia. And working with my dad on construction sites like he did with his dad gives you a hard edge. And our fathers taught us that hard edge, that your name's attached to your work and that you work really hard doing so. And he was a drywaller. He grew up doing plastering and before that stonemason. And as the houses changed, he got into drywalling. And that's where I came in to do the help with the drywall. And you're wondering why this is all related, I'll tell you. So I'm working on a job, you know, I'm doing the nail holes. I'm like 11, 10 year old kid, one of these nice homes in Sydney. And I'm doing the nail holes kind of fast. And my father, he's built strong, eh? He's used to having his hands over his head, working every day. <laughs> Taps me on the shoulder and he says, Clifford, you better do a good job. And I'm doing it fast. I'm thinking I'm doing a good job. He says, you better do a good job. My name's attached to my work. Man, that was powerful because it was work. But for, I didn't know, like he's running the business, right? So he's running the business. So, and he was a perfectionist and he had to be the best in the business to be hired because he's a Mi'kmaq person doing houses in Sydney. You establish a name for yourself. And then you get the jobs. So I never became a drywaller. After that, I became a journalist. I did 11 years of that. Uh, then I worked for the Unamali Tribal Police, six years of that. Went to university and studied the 2IC in principle, you know, learned that. And then I worked for the Union of Nova Scotia Big Mob for a few years. And now the Unamali Institute of Natural Resource. This is my 19th year. And when he told me your name's attached to your work, it must have impacted me because if you look up journal, if you look up the Micmac News online, you'll find that I'm the former editor of a historical newspaper. My name's attached to my work. There's hundreds upon hundreds of articles written by me, edited by me. Then when I worked for a UINR doing the moose management, if you Google moose management in Cape Breton, my name will pop up everywhere. So. My father gave me that hard edge to be able to do this type of work, to stand up to racism. All those things, those are the tools our fathers gave us. But we're very lucky. Our mothers gave us these incredible tools as well. Our mothers taught us the virtues, love, respect, manners. I remember being a little kid and being taught manners. Those take you a long way. It gives you garner respect. They taught us manners. They taught us crafting. And they valued education. So very lucky. The tools I got from my dad and the tools I learned from my mom, I'm able to dance in two worlds. We always talk about 2 IC and the blending of modern Western science with traditional knowledge. And I didn't know I was building those toolboxes. I was building those capacities as a Mi'kmaq person growing up in the communities, hunting, fishing, getting berries, getting medicine observing the night sky, camped on an island and watching what the animals are doing at that time, the birds, the mammals, the fish and the insects. I didn't know I was building a repertoire of traditional knowledge that was based in science. So when I went to the university, I was a mature student. In 1999-2000, I started university, a mature student at age 36, and I got into this MSIT Integrated Science Program. And with Dr. Cheryl Bartlett, Dr. Merdina Marshall, and now Dr. Uh, Albert Marshall were instructing me. And I didn't know my life as a Mi'kmaq person dancing into worlds would contribute to scientific understandings. So too I'd see, and I'm getting into that because that's part of to build up my work. So too I'd see, and is the combination of my traditional education as a Mi'kmaq person growing up in the communities, I have a traditional stories, I have a traditional outlook, I have a way of learning from language keepers and knowledge holders. That builds my repertoire of traditional knowledge, which is not learned within the classroom. It's referenced in the classroom, but it occurs when you're out there doing all these things. The transfer occurs, the language is passed. And the understandings are brought in. and But I also have my high school diploma, my university degree, my formal training, and so many journal articles that I was able to contribute to. 
I contributed to over, I would say, 40 to 50 of them with my name on I, I lost track. But my formal education and training, that's in the picture. So for me, as a natural resource manager, I have to take my traditional understandings, because I was brought up that way, take my traditional teachings and blend that with my modern Western scientific education. My reading, my writing, my arithmetic, my high school diploma, my university degree, my formal training. And I build the within that the strengths of tenets, the strengths and tenets of both. I weave the fabric. And in my case, I use that to express myself in how we're going to build a management plan for moose. And I found out very early that I am a terrible moose manager. I can't manage moose at all. Jamie, they don't listen to me. I say, come off this mountain, go to this mountain where there's more food. They don't listen to me. So I found out very early in my work that I can't manage moose, but I, I can manage human behavior around moose. And that's what management plans are all about. That's what management's all about. And I find that I teach a lot of young students this when I'm asked to do presentations in their classroom. I've done the grade twos, Mountain View Education, Mountain View Elementary School here in Cape Breton, all the way up to the top level brass of the RCMP. I've also educated universities, corporate world, and government institutions as well. So in that process, I found that as a, what you call, as a, natural resource manager, I always tell them that I just can't look at moose and make decisions in and around moose. And us at UINR, I tell them I'm a moose management coordinator and I help contribute to the management of moose and moose ecosystems, which means I just can't make decisions solely on the benefit of moose. I have to make decisions and contribute to the conversations using traditional knowledge, using science to make decisions that are important to the ecosystem. You have moose people making moose decisions in government. You have stream restoration people making stream restoration, lynx people making lynx decisions, uh, pine marten people making pine marten decisions, salmon people making salmon decisions. And there's no collaboration within each one's realm of their work, pigeonholing your portfolios. So I profess that we must communicate our work because in nature, the moose, the salmon, the bear, the insects, the fish, the trees, the pine marten, the lynx, they have a relationship and they communicate through this relationship so that every one of them can survive and move forward and thrive. As humans, we have to imitate what's going on in nature. So. I'm not just a moose management coordinator. I'm also contributing and speaking about the benefit of all species that exist and need to exist within these ecosystems. So I'm able to blend my traditional knowledge and science to contribute that way. And I always tell this two-eyed seeing story for the benefit of our audience who don't understand two-eyed seeing. Two-eyed seeing is a term where you take and it was, it's a concept, and it's built upon the language of the Mi'kmaq approaching the world with concepts from the two, and understandings from two ways of knowing, two ways of seeing. And that phrase was coined, it was given the moniker by Dr. Albert Marshall, who at UINR, he is my mentor and my elder advisor. So I'm very lucky I have that guy come in and give me instruction and give me advice. And it's pretty interesting. So I always have this story and I tell it so that the world can understand two-eyed seeing. And it speaks of a Mi'kmaq legend involving Glooscap. So this story begins at a time where we were seeing great changes in climate and great changes in the landscape and great changes in the animals themselves. Story goes back to the extinction of the megafauna. And the story goes like this. A long time ago, and in the time of legends, our ancestors were finding it very hard to survive in a very rough environment and climate change. We were seeing the end of the Ice Age, and the animals were very fierce. They were hungry. They are on their way out. So when we went out to get food, we became food to these animals. The short-faced bear, the saber-toothed cat, the dire wolf. 
there was a giant beaver. Even the squirrel was big and fierce. So when we went out to harvest food, we became food to these animals. So the families figured we better pray to the creator and ask for help. So the families prayed to the creator and the creator sent Goose Cap to endeavor to find a solution. Goose Cap so loved the Ilnu, the humans of the land, my ancestors, the Mi'kmaq. We are Ilnu. We are the humans of the land. Mi'kmaq is our language. So that's why we're often called the Mi'kmaq. So Goose Cap so loved the humans of the land, the Ilnu, that Goose Cap went to find a solution. So Goose Cap took the short-faced bear he lovingly petted it and stroked it till it became the modern, more efficient bears of today. Done so with the dire wolf, the saber-toothed cat, done so with the giant beaver, and even the squirrel. And Glooscap gave instructions to the animals to serve the humans and not to cause fear. And now when we hunt and we pray and we ask for an animal for food, they usually present themselves and we harvest it. We accept the gift of their, we accept their gift so that we can survive. So if you look at that story, it's a two-eyed scene. It is the story of evolution told in a very colorful way. And it is told by a voice more ancient than mine, usually at a campsite on a shoreline with a fire going with the night sky up there. You got the sounds and sights of nature. You have the smell of the medicines, the food, the love of the family, and the voices. So it goes into your long-term memory because all the senses are used to interpret that story. So that's the story of evolution told in a very colorful way within that learning environment. So it's a, it's a connection of patterns. And as a traditional person, I can travel the world with this one eye open only and tell that story because it counts for something. It gives my ancestors a fingerprint to a time where we were eyewitnesses to the extinction of the megafauna because we're able to tell this story and as a traditional person like i said i can travel the world tell the story and get away with it because i am that but because i have two sets of toolboxes i'm trained to dance in two worlds in the two i see in format i can explain this story scientifically as well and so i owe my audience that story as well so in Debert, Nova Scotia, they found a stone hide scraper and it was very old. And the scientists, the archaeologists and the Mi'kmaq leadership said, how long has this been sitting there? How old is this tool? And they found out that it was through radiocarbon dating of the materials around where it was found, the organic materials in a hearth where it was found, Radiocarbon dated those materials and found out that it was sitting there for 10,600 radiocarbon years, which is a, a great amount of time. You convert them to calendar years, that's 11 to 14,000 calendar years. So at a time where we were seeing the extinction of the megafauna, we were existing, living, and actually working on ancient caribou. Debert, Nova Scotia, the landscape is a bottleneck for the ancient migration of the caribou. And our ancestors would intercept that, meet up with them, and harvest. So 11 to 14,000 calendar years was a time where we saw the end of the Ice Age and the extinction of the megafauna. And our ancestors were there to tell the story because our stone tools and implements have been discovered there. That's not counting the technology it took for our ancestors to build and create that tool and other tools of that time. So that tool gives my ancestors a fingerprint to a time where we were eyewitnesses of the extinction of the megafauna. And as a science person, I can travel that world and tell that story from this one eye and get away with it because I am that. But I have to tell the two stories because that's who I am. And it's pretty interesting, you know. I have a traditional story. The changing of the animals through the legend of Goose Cap goes back where we were eyewitnesses to the extinction of the megafauna. I have a traditional story. And science backs it up. You know how strong that is? I could tell a story and I say, hey, science backs me up, man. Boom, that's powerful. But I also have a science story. You know, the radiocarbon dating of the materials where a stone hike scraper was found shows that we were there from 11 to 14,000 years ago. We were the eyewitnesses to the extinction of the megafauna. And I have a science story that's backed by Mi'kmaq legend. That's powerful, too. As a scientist, if I can tell a story and the stories and legends of my people back it up, that's powerful. But in the two-eyed scene format, 
No story is stronger or more powerful than the other. The Mi'kmaq story is up there just as the science story. None of them are stronger and more powerful than the other. But try try explaining that to an old 300-year-old university with all those professors who don't have a great understanding of what the value of traditional knowledge. And we're finding out that science is starting to catch up to some of our stories and some of our stories are catching catching up to science. They're meeting. And from there, I base my understandings. And it all comes back with our community members. You got to remember the natural resource manager I'm working with our community members. It all comes back to several understandings of our behaviors in the natural world. So as a Mi'kmaq person growing up in the Mi'kmaq territory, harvesting from this territory, I understand my sense of place, who I am, what are my responsibilities, what are my roles as a young man back then learning these things. I learned that I am spiritually connected to the landscapes, the seascapes, the earth, air, fire, and water. They all are basic. They're the elements of life, and I respect everyone. I don't abuse any of them. And there's a saying at the end of all our prayers, we say, Emsit Nogama, all my relations. And that includes, but doesn't necessarily entirely include my ancestors, my future relatives, the people I have on earth with me now. They're included, but I come from this land. I have sprouted from this land. I grew from this land. I grew from the elements of the water, the earth, air, fire, and water. Whatever I gather, hunt, it nurtures my life. And when I die, I go back into the natural world. The cycle of life continues. And I feed and nurture those things. So that makes me spiritually connected and related to all these things. The rocks in the pool, those are my brothers and sisters. The blades of grass, they're my brothers and sisters. The eagle is my uncle. The moose are our brothers and sisters. I am spiritually connected, Emsit Nogama. So for that understanding of my sense of place, who I am as a Mi'kmaq in these territories, my roles and responsibilities, I understand Emsit Nogama, that I am spiritually connected. From there, I learned Nedugulim. And Nedugulim is a Mi'kmaq term, legally in court, because we had to prove we had several Supreme Court decisions, all of them in our favor. When we wanted to get back into hunting and fishing, we had to prove to the court, Supreme Court of Canada what nedigalant means because that's the foundation of, our, of how we harvest. And we told them, our leadership told the Supreme Court of Canada, Canada that nedigalant is the use of the natural bounty provided by the creator for the self-support and well-being of the family, the individual, the community, and the nation. And Nedugalim means that I can go out and do these things in a way that I do not harm the integrity, diversity, or productivity of that environment. So I used to say Nedugalim, I didn't understand the term when I was a kid, but I was taught these principles of how I should approach the natural world. So I used to say a nedigalim governs my behavior in the natural world, but really governs is a colonial term. Nedigalim influences my behavior in the natural world. That I take only what I need. I give back. I offer prayer. I teach. I learn. I harvest. And I share. So nedigalim is a foundational understanding of what our management in natural resource management is all about. And it comes from our communities coming together and telling me, this is what we need to do. This is how we have to approach this. So my work as a natural resource manager on Moose, the early years when we went to the communities and we asked for how we're going to approach natural resource management from our perspective, I remember that there was a lot of controversy happening. We had a hyperabundant moose population. We had people going up there hunting, drinking, partying, getting quite a bit of moose and selling them. It was pretty dangerous. And our activities up there were not conducive to, even though we had a hyperabundant population, the behavior of a lot of our harvesters were, was not conducive to sustain sustainability. It did not in, 
incorporate in the thought process Netagolim, and it was not Mi'kmaq, it was dangerous. And it was those conditions where I was brought in to help bring about change. And it was a dangerous time. We were going to the communities and we were having these discussions. Change needed to be made. And I remember when I took this job, I told my brother, I said, I don't know if I should apply for this job because he or she is going to be, uh, has to be a conduit for some incredible changes. This person might get beat up, shot, or both. <laughs> right? and, and I said, I pitied the fool that gets this job. And that's what I said. And next thing you know, I end up applying. And I got the job. And in my interview, I was asked, what's missing in our Musan? And I said, the spiritual connection is gone. People are going up there for financial means. It's not safe for families. We need families to go up there. We need elders to go up there. We need to hunt and reestablish our relationship with the natural world. And they were taking notes. They were taking notes. They were taking notes. And I was telling them a few other things, a few other things. And you know what? I was the last person interviewed on a Friday afternoon. I don't know if you know what that's like, but it feels like, okay, man, let's get this interview over with. But they couldn't because I was giving them, telling them all these things and they took notes. And I remember that was the first time I was unemployed in my life too. I was unemployed for a couple of months there. First time ever. I worked every day of my life since I was a kid because I worked on construction sites, worked on my education. And for one strange reason, I was unemployed. I applied for that job. And then 20 minutes. They said, after the interview was done, I asked them the same question everybody asks. So when will I know? And they, the woman, the administrator, told me, Enigma, yes, Kamali, wait. And within 20 minutes, I was hired for that job. It was pretty interesting because my brother, Danny, he just passed away. He was one of my greatest advisors. I was offering prayer for my direction in life. I was offering prayer. Should I apply for this job? And I and I'm walking down the road one day, broke, unemployed, kind of confused because this never happened to me. All my life, since I was a child, I defied the stereotypes because I worked since I was a kid. And here I am unemployed. Walking down the road, my brother picks me up. Cliff, let's go for a coffee. I said, all right, you buying, bro? Yeah, I'm buying. <laughs> Sat in this truck. Got in the truck and he says, Clifford, I had a dream. And my daddy's, my brother Danny is a young elder, very connected. He's he's learned from the old school, older than old school. His teachings are, my teachings are old school. The people he learned from were elders in the 1970s and 80s who were between 80 and 100 years old. So, the, you know, he learned from the very old school. And he says, Clifford, I had a dream. And I said, okay, uh, I'm interested. What's this dream about? Points right at me. He says, I dreamt you were doing great things with moose. Boom. There's a moment, and it happens to all of us. It feels like a lightning bolt went right through your body. I feel in your spine. There's no hair in my arms. But the hair in my arms and the hair in the back of my neck stood up. And I said, well, I've been offering prayer, and I was thinking about applying for that job at UINR on the moose management. Uh, that was 2005. And uh, Danny says, Put your application in today. And here I am, still doing the work. And uh, my brother has given me incredible teachings on the traditional side of things. And he's contributed a lot to this management picture as a, as a harvester and as an elder. And uh, I'm so grateful for that because my management, my work plan, and all my deliverables come from the grassroots. It's not a bureaucrat, lawyer, and myself sitting in a room saying, this is right, this is wrong, this is how we should implement this. It's the community members telling us, this is right, this is wrong, these are the changes we need to make within ourselves. Let's promote that discussion, and we move forward that way. So I'm very lucky. My deliverables, my management plans, my work plans all come from the grassroots. And if you look at the Mi'kmaq historically, our ecosystems were prime. They were perfect. There was abundance. And we fit ourselves within that natural realm. We would match our migration patterns to the birds, the mammals, the fish, and the insects. And that we would 
interpret the food at its highest food value and at a time where we would not negatively impact their populations or the ecosystems where they thrive. Very small, if any, footprint in these areas. So we carried that. The language, Nedigalim, Sitnogama, Mi'kmaq natural law, which means I'm only in this, this place at the right time. The harvest, I'm not going to be picking blueberries in May. I'm not going to be hunting moose in June. I'm going to be harvesting according to natural law. So as a traditional harvester, Mi'kmaq natural law, Nedigalim, all these understandings, we were able to do these things even up to today. Today we have for 16 years of my work, I've been used, we've had a hyperabundant population. The last three or four years, we've seen a decline, but we still have a herd that's accessible to our people and relatively healthy. And we're able to do that. We're able to have youth hunts, elder hunts, education on moose. We have Distribution in our communities. We have the education on moose. We have a time where we say we're going to hunt and a time where we say we're not going to hunt. We have all these things in place without enforcement and without a reporting system. We're able to do all these things without those two important tools that non Migma need to manage. So if you look at the Mi'kmaq, the non-Mi'kmaq hunt, they need to report and you need enforcement. So, you know, that tells you how Nedeglin builds the understanding of what management should look like. So very early in my work, we put together a working committee with the federal government and the provincial government, you know, Parks Canada and Nova Scotia Natural Resources. And we work together on a lot of things and we put a working committee together so that we can discuss the challenges and successes of how we're going to co-manage. And it's funny because when I was hired to be a conduit for change, the federal government saying the Mi'kmaq have a treaty right. They can hunt 365 days a year. They can do this. And the Mi'kmaq need a management plan. We were told that sitting in an off in a room and we're talking about that this was even actually before i got hired the Mi'kmaq need a management plan before and after i was hired this was the conversation at the table our provincial people said the Mi'kmaq can hunt 365 days a year their hunt is not monitored the Mi'kmaq need a management plan i said okay those words are taken to heart i don't know where it's coming from it comes from a paternalistic attitude <laughs> But we went to our communities and we started talking about how we're going to build a management plan, how we're going to take management at this level. I was told to go to the communities, ask two basic questions. How would you like to see the Mi'kmaq manage moose in Unamagi? And also, how would you like to see Mi'kmaq manage the ecosystems in Unamagi? So we gathered a lot of information, traditional knowledge, conversations. And we did that for about two years. Elders, communities, some elders wanted to be met separately. And we had very interesting discussions, very interesting discussions. And I still remember some of those very important discussions. And some of them were uncomfortable. There was a young guy from one of their communities. This is my right. I can do what I want. He's eating his chest. He's posturing. I can do this. I can do that. And his auntie says, nephew. I don't like the way you're hunting. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you should be doing. So those are the conversations that were happening. So we got out, we started gathering information. So to help us with our management plan. And we sat down in a meeting because these same governments that we're going to partner with, this is a turning point in the discussion. So we asked Parks Canada, says, okay, we're going to work on this management plan from the Mi'kmaq perspective. What do you have in your management plan on moose that's going to assist us with our management plan? Here's what they told us. Well, we don't have a management plan on moose per se. We help do a study on the population with UINR. And from the numbers taken from the population estimate, 
we give those numbers to the province and the province decides how many non-Mi'kmaq people get to hunt moose by lottery that year. Okay. And here they are telling us we need a management plan and they didn't have one. So we asked the province the same thing. What do you have in your management plan to help us with data development of our management plan? Told us basically the same thing. We don't have a management plan per se. We help work on the moose population study with UINR and Parks Canada. From there, we have a population estimate. And from there, we determine how many non-Mi'kmaq people can hunt harvest moose during that hunting season. So me and my uh, co-worker, Eric Shiley, from the, he's a lawyer, negotiator with uh, KMKNO, the Mi'kmaq Rights Initiative. And he says, well, you guys telling us we need a management plan where you just didn't carry one. Uh, now is the time that we look at full management because a moose in, the, in its ecosystem is not a Parks Canada moose. It's not a provincial moose. It's not a Mi'kmaq moose. The moose is a moose. And it, now is the time for us to collaborate and partner and co-manage this important resource. So that's where our work has been headed. And we've been doing, we found that it's hard to get three levels of government to proceed together, three levels working together. So we found it was, if the Mi'kmaq led the discussion with Parks Canada, you move that portfolio to a point where you do that work. You work with the best of your capacities as Mi'kmaq and you work with their capacities that they offer through Parks Canada. And we get to do a lot of good things. And we do so with the provincial government. We find it's a lot better that we lead the discussion. We offer the best of our capacities, the best of our traditional knowledge, just like with parks. And then they share the best of their capacities. And we move that agenda forward. We find co-management, ideally, three levels moving forward at the same time. But because the ideologies and priorities are different with different levels of government, we found it was if the Mi'kmaq led the conversation this way with parks, we're able to move forward, so too with the province. So that's where we're at now. I see people putting management plans to paper and they end up being a document on the wall. For me, the greatest outcome of our management plan is not on paper. For me, it's the change of behavior. So we're looking at the late 80s into the 90s, I mean the 90s, right up until 2000. There's a 15-year period where it was nice and it was crazy and then it was dangerous. And we seen the change through our discussions with harvesters. This is what needs to be done. This is how it should be changed. And it's funny. The first discussions with our communities, community members were saying, they should do this. They should do that. They should do that. And we're writing. And then at the end of their giving me input, I asked them, who's they? Who's they? And they say, Clifford, you made me think about it. We were never asked these questions before. They is us. We must do this. We must do that. So for me, the greatest legacy of our management plan is unwritten. It is the change of behavior. And if you look at from when we started in 2005 to what we have going now, I have harvesters who were really invested into that behavior that was not conducive to sustainability. And once we started the conversation in the communities and the harvesters were talking, community members were talking, elders and youth were talking. I've had a, I was at a gas station and one of those notorious hunters tapped me on the back to Clifford. I want to change. What can I do? And I said, well, you got skills. You're still healthy. Why don't you help with youth hunts? Why don't you help teach the youth and show them the proper way, the way of our ancestors? And we see the big change. Some didn't need that change. Some needed more education on ethical and their what treaty rights mean to them. And uh, for me, that is the greatest reward is the uh, change of behavior. And uh, every year we have a feast in the highland. We have people in uniform there. We have Park Scanda people. We have people from our organizations. We have UINR. We have students come in. It's very cross-cultural. We put our, we have people from wildlife, wildlife organizations in the province come in. We put down our guards, historical guards, and we talk about moose management, and we have a traditional meal 
in the highlands. And every conversation is a reflection of the good work that's being done, not only by ourselves, but by our community members who pushed for this change. I don't take credit for any of the change. I only take credit as being the eyes and ears to our community members who helped me foster and promote that discussion. And I think that's what makes our management style unique is that we push the forward, push the envelope forward from the perspective of the community. The momentum comes from the community members speaking up, telling me what needs to be done and telling each other what needs to be done. And I'm able to sit at a table and say, Mi'kmaq jurisdiction involves this. Mi'kmaq jurisdiction, based on our treaty rights, puts a strong emphasis on responsibility. Here's what our harvesters are telling us. 30 years ago, if I sat at a table and spoke about Mi'kmaq jurisdiction, they'll probably throw me out of the room or they won't listen or they'll laugh at it. This crazy Indian talking about Mi'kmaq jurisdiction. But our treaty rights promote that. Our treaty rights and responsibilities are very important. So that's where we are. And that's going to be very interesting. Clifford, that was a masterclass on what's happening in Amagi with Moose co-management and leadership and a beautiful explanation of two-eyed seeing. And one thing that I'm curious to ask you about is you really describe nicely how the Mi'kmaq knowledge is passed on from person to person and how that knowledge lives within people and how important that is. And I'm curious what work is happening in the community to make sure that knowledge continues to be passed on. Like now that you have grandkids and so on, I sometimes hear people worry about cultural continuity. And I'm really curious to hear what you're doing and others to make sure the indigenous knowledge stays strong for many more years to come. Yeah, we discussed this uh, amongst our family and friends after my brother Danny passed away because he organized a youth hunt and he taught a lot of things. And I remember the kids we had, oh my God, 16 years ago and how they were taught how they were brought up with these understandings. And I see them now as young adults. They're like 26, 27 years old, and they're leading the charge. They're doing the work, and they're organizing, and they're passing on knowledge that we passed on to them. And they are taking that leadership role. That's one community, and that's member two. And when my brother passed, a friend of mine, fellow family member says, we lost a library. We lost a major library of information. I say, we did, but guess what? He shared his knowledge. He shared his stories. He shared his understandings, showed us the work, what needs to be done. And that's just one community. Every community that I know in our 13 communities across the province, I would say every one of them have organized youth hunts and some have community hunts and some have elder hunts and they set up camp, they have storytelling. Bear River, they asked me to come in to teach archery, teach them fishing, striped bass from the ocean. The moose hunt is part of it, but they want to learn everything that we do in our territory. And we come in and we do storytelling. We, we do all these great things so that not only the moose hunting is passed on, everything else that needs to be learned is passed on. And I always tell people, you know, Traditional knowledge is powerful and uh, traditional knowledge, you know, you can reference it in the classroom, but it actually occurs in these places we go to and the knowledge is transferred through our activities on the land, on the waters. And I ask uh, scholars, what's the best way to protect traditional knowledge? And of course, you're going to get a spiel on intellectual property rights. This, we got to record this. We got to record that. That's great. From a scholarly perspective, I see that. I know what they're talking about. But I ask traditional people in our communities, what's the best way to protect traditional knowledge? And they say it's to pass it on and make sure that the younger generations have the same benefits and the same understandings that you got to learn. Don't take it for granted. Take these young people out there, show them the way, teach them the way, 
and let the knowledge be transferred that way. They might not be knowing at that time that they're building a repertoire of traditional knowledge which is going to help them in the future. My grandson, I'll use an example, all my grandkids, they have good manners. That's a gift from the creator. I know that as I raised their parents. <laughs> they like traditional food. They won't refuse a pizza or a Big Mac like any kid, but they rather it be food that I cook and that we harvest it naturally. So one kid has been taking it very seriously since he was three years old, fishing with us, hunting with us, staying at camp. And he's 14 now. So he has 11 years of experience of going to places, see changes in the landscapes, seascapes, see highs and sees some lows. He sees ups and downs. So he's already built a repertoire of traditional knowledge at 11 years, but it really is it's thousands of years. But that won't happen if you're at home and these kids do it a lot playing these games, wasting raw human emotion on an artificial playing field. That only occurs when we take them out into the natural world and we show them the way. I remember my that, that grandson when he was 11 years old, going through a rough time. The family, his, his mom having a problem there. They had to separate the kids and put them into into foster homes within the family. So my sister took care of them. and. I remember we went to a place along the ocean. The waves are coming in and we're standing at the beach, the ocean, and the waves are rolling over our feet. The sun is setting and the moon is about to rise. The sun is going to drop into the ocean. The moon is going to rise out of the ocean. It is in that moment we're offering our tobacco because we're getting ready for night fishing. We're offering our tobacco. I offer my prayer. I say, I thank you, Creator, that they have the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual capacities to continue to be a teacher. I thank you that I am here at my grandson passing on these teachings. I want to let the birds, mammals, fish, and insects know that I am here in your territory. I am announcing my intention that I want to harvest food. Should I not acquire food, may I acquire knowledge, which is ever conducive to my survival. I want to ask my ancestors to join in, help us with a safe and successful harvest to protect us. And I ask the spirits of the land and the water to protect us and offer us a safe and successful harvest. That's a Reader's Digest version of my prayer. There's more, but that's pretty well most of it. I put my tobacco in the water and I look to my grandson. The sunset is shining on his face. His eyes are closed. He's 11 years old. He's praying longer. He's praying harder. And I wait, because it's his prayer. I'm not going to say, come on, buddy, let's fish. Wait for his prayer. After it's over, dusted off his hands, made sure all the tobacco was in the water. Looked at me, he says, Papa, this is the only thing that makes me feel more human. Boom, that hit me good, man. That was like, whoa. What this kid told me was ancient. As a human, he's talking, this is the only thing that makes me feel more illno, human of the land. And that any grandfather, any grandmother, any grandchild, niece or nephew could be standing on that shoreline, maybe a thousand years back, maybe 500 years back, maybe 3,000 years back, and saying the same things. And he taught me a lesson that prayers are powerful, your intentions are powerful, your relationship to the ancestors, to the spirits of the land, and the waters are powerful. And that we're not mindlessly standing on a beach waiting to fish. We are on that beach ever cognizant of what's happened seven generations back. Our ancestors have led us to fish peacefully on the shoreline. Their blood, sweat, and tears have allowed that. And that any decisions we make on that beach, we have to make sure that we are appeasing and in good light of our ancestors. Also, we are looking seven generations ahead. The decisions we make on this beach today. Are they going to positively impact our families back home, our lives, but also positively impact the next seven generations? That's the Mi'kmaq way. We are not linear thinkers. We are thinkers of constant flux and motion that we are standing here at this moment in time. And my grandson tells me this, reminds me that I am there at this moment, but my mind is connected, I'm spiritually connected to the past and into the future. That's what my grandson taught me in a few short words. And I know he was praying for his family too. Interesting, eh? It's a super story. And let me ask you this thing, Cliff. I'm really enjoying how you're 
explaining so clearly where the traditional knowledge sits and how your brother Danny had it, you have it, your grandson is now getting it. And if you were going to give advice, for example, to an academic or a government researcher or someone who comes along and says that they want to include indigenous knowledge in their work. And like you said, there's this tendency that maybe to look for an academic paper or whatnot. But what advice would you give to people in those roles, I guess, on how to actually work with indigenous knowledge or basically work with indigenous peoples is what we're talking about. One of the greatest things is you got to establish trust. UINR, you know, we brought our elders together many times, asked what they wanted. They contributed what they wanted. And before we brought it back out, we bring it to them. Is this what you said? You know, what needs to be done is we need more venues and avenues for the traditional knowledge holders to come together and share their stories in a non-threatening environment, in an environment where they're comfortable to speak, and even in their own language. Traditional knowledge is, a, in my understanding, it's a collection of stories. And I can tell, sit and tell my stories, and then my buddy from another community goes, well, that happened to me. And this is what occurred to me when I was there. And you get to connect those stories. So we need more avenues where our traditional knowledge keepers can speak freely, safely, and connect the dots of those stories. Man, I can tell a story that's out of this world because our truths are stranger than fiction. First Nation people, when we tell our stories, our truths are, we don't have to, we don't have to make anything up, man. Our truths are stranger than fiction. So I can tell a story that's out of this world. But it happened because I'm not sitting at home watching Dancing with the Stars. I'm in these remote areas doing my thing with youth under the stars. So things occur. And I can tell a story. And another knowledge keeper will say, that happened to me. And my cousin, we were at this place and we seen this. And this is what occurred. You have to share those stories. We need avenues where those stories need to be heard and shared. Because it it also enriches the audience. But it also enriches the this podcast, for example, man, you bring in knowledge keepers to tell their stories in their own language and you have uh, subtitles. That's powerful, man. That is powerful. So we need more of those avenues so we can tell the stories, share the stories. And I have this incredible story. So I mentor youth. They could be First Nation. They could be non-First Nation. Albert tells me, Albert Marshall tells me, he says, Clifford, we have to share the knowledge, and here is what we got. You say we have, because it's rights, treaty rights, right? I move on treaty rights. He says, Clifford, as treaty rights holders in the province of Nova Scotia and in our territories, we're the chess players. We have a different set of rules, a different approach to the game on this beautiful playing surface we'll call the lands and waters of our territory. And we have responsibilities non-first nation people cannot be the chess players they can be the checker players they have their own set of rules on this beautiful landscape and seascapes we call nova scotia and they have responsibilities so he tells me what do we have in common i said we got this beautiful playing surface we known as our of those landscapes and seascapes of nova scotia and we have responsibilities work with that work with that <laughs> so there's there might be divisions between rights holders and privilege holders but that was the best way to explain it and i teach young people to harvest within their if they're first nations they have rights beautiful play and surface and responsibilities if they're not first nations they have privileges beautiful play and surface and responsibilities so i had this one kid he's not first nations lives in a neighborhood he's about 15 years old at this time catches this big beautiful eel we're trying to get striped bass catches this remarkable eel and i tell him the same question i tell my grandkids or anyone that i teach what are you going to do with this 
because I want to give them the decision-making power. And there's no right decision. There's no wrong decision. I just want to know why you're going to keep it or put it back. And he caught this big, beautiful eel in a place where there's a lot of eels. He says, I want to keep it. He told me there's elders, non-Mi'kmaq elders in his neighborhood that still love this kind of food. And when you give those kids that decision-making power, by the time they're teenagers, they've been asked to make hundreds of decisions. That's going to help them when they're adults or moving into adulthood to make manly decisions or womanly decisions in this natural world or in their, with their lives. They already have that decision-making power. I'm not making the decision for them. They are within the rules and regulations of privilege holders or rights holders. They are making these decisions. Same thing with another grandson of mine. He, he decided to keep one and put one back. No bad decisions, but that's what his role was. So this 15-year-old kid, we go to this beautiful place. It's night. It's in the summertime. It's kind of cold. The winds are coming in. The mists are coming in. Waves are coming in. We have our baits all casted out. We're sitting on the beach waiting for right up against a cliff. There's a cliff behind us. We're sitting there. So he's non-Mi'kmaq. He's using his privileges and responsibilities. I'm making mom be using my rights and responsibilities. I'm teaching. And waves are coming in. The winds are coming in. Howling winds and the waves are kind of loud. Mist in the air. Stars want to appear. And as the night is clearing, the, the waves are not slowing down. And the winds are still working. I can hear this beautiful music. Oh my God. It's beautiful and haunting at the same time. And I'm hearing it. And I don't want to say anything because I can't figure it out. And I know the kid's hearing it. His ears stick out. And I and he's 15 years old. I'm in my mid-50s at that time. He's turning his head. He's listening. But he's not saying anything. And I'm starting to think, well, maybe somebody took a car and drove up behind the cliff. There's some old roads there. Maybe they're playing their music loud and having a little party. Then I said to myself, well, if they drove up there, we would have seen their headlights. We would have heard the car. We would hear them. So I ruled that out. But an hour and 40 minutes go by. We still hear these things. And I'm starting to think, you know what? I think that's the little people. The Wigglada moves. We have legends of the little people. Maybe they are on this hill dancing and singing. And if that's the case, we have to pack up and go. Because we don't want to be in their way. We don't want an encounter. So another 40 minutes go by. I'm not saying anything. Kids not saying anything. We're just trying to catch fish. We're not talking about this music. That's the elephant in the room. Beautiful, enchanting music. I'll tell you right now, it's beautiful. Another 40 minutes go by and I'm thinking, we got to pack up and go. It's still occurring. We shouldn't be there. But we love fishing so much. Before I make a decision, I wait again and I listen. So we're there almost two and a half to three hours hearing this music. I close my eyes. I wait for the waves to stop for a little bit. And I hear it again more clear. I figure it out. It's the whales singing way out, miles away. Their music is carried across the top of the ocean and bouncing off the cliff behind us. So once I got that figured out, I said, kid, you've been hearing this? He said, I've been hearing it all night. And I told him, it's the whales. It's the whales. And you hear the whales singing and you're teaching young people. It's a beautiful moment. And you don't get that sitting at home, watching, dancing with the stars. You get that being in these remote areas under the stars, passing on traditional knowledge. And we drove home and I said, kid, you know what? I thought those were, I thought those were the little people that would allow the moves. And he goes, what are they? I said, your people call them leprechauns. He goes, if that was the case, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> said he probably would have cried. But those are the kind of things that occur. And that's just one story. And, but it's a story of listening. How you are in tune, spiritually connected to the whales, the water, the spirits of the land. There was a moment where our imagination took, or my imagination took over and I thought our safety was compromised. Then I really gave it a good thought. And I said, guess what? We don't have to go, man. We can fish. And we end up getting some nice fish that night. Brought them home for food. And like I said, traditional knowledge is a collection of stories. That's one of them. So this kid has stories. My grandkids have stories. Everybody has stories. We need a place for people to say our stories. We need safe places to tell our stories.
because as a Mi'kmaq person, my my truths are stranger than fiction. You imagine these knowledge holders who are older than me telling their stories. They don't want people to say, that didn't happen, you're, you're crazy, or that didn't happen, that they don't exist. But we're spiritually connected. We are spiritual people. So we're going to have events and occurrences such as what happened to us with the whales, many other things, many other realizations. We need to connect those dots. And I tell that to learning institutions, our own governments, and even corporate entities. We need more opportunities for that to occur because we are losing knowledge keepers every year. We're losing people. Even when I met, we had a meeting. My brother Danny was there. A few knowledge keepers from Unamagi, and there was one young guy he learning from all the knowledge keepers. He says, Clifford, there's less and less of us. I said, that's why it's more, that's why it's important for us to share the stories and do these things and teach the kids. Sometimes those kids could be 40 years old, Jamie. Some of those kids are never had that benefit of, of all those teachings. And some of them deserve second chances, you know, third chances because of uh, the distractions of life. So we have to be ready for that. I, I hope many people take the time to listen to the stories that you shared here, because I think they're a perfect explanation of indigenous knowledge systems and how they work and how they're passed on and how they can be strengthened and how they can be worked with. So this has been really great. I'm very appreciative. And I don't know if there was any final words that you wanted to say about your program specifically and or the organization or what the future holds in the next year or so ahead for you yeah we're going to have some interesting developments got to keep that on hold we have a moose survey coming up a couple of weeks from now actually we're going to do another study we're finding the numbers are coming down and at the management table it's easy to blame hunters it's easy to blame hunters Mi'kmaq non-Mi'kmaq but I am noticing that the numbers are going down in areas we don't hunt, such as the national park and in areas that access is pretty limited. So there's other mysteries that are occurring. And as managers, we have to look into that more. Yes, we can blame hunting and work around human activity. That's one part of the picture. But we got to find out what's going on. Why are the numbers going down in areas we don't hunt? And it's hard for me. I'm in a hot seat on that because everybody's blaming themselves or the hunters. And I said, yeah, that's part of the picture. But there's a bigger picture. And this is a global occurrence. This is not just happening in our territory. It's happening in other jurisdictions. So I got to reach out to other places across Canada and see what the population trend is going on there with moose. And it's concerning right here. It's concerning. And we are taking a very serious look at hunting, of course, which is the easiest thing to do. We got to look at other things that are occurring as well. Nice. And with all the fresh snow you have in Unamagi right now, I guess it'll be easy or good conditions to count those moose. Or are you doing the survey through a helicopter method? Or Yeah, we're using a helicopter. Yeah, we're using a helicopter. And fresh snow, we should see fresh tracks. You don't count the tracks. You only count what you see within that picture. So I can't wait. It should be fun. We have some training for everybody's individual role in this survey. And we have people from our communities as part of that. Our communities and our organizations to help with that survey. And I will be working incident command. I'll be working in the main building with the, as the information is brought in. I don't need to fly anymore. I've done enough of that. I want to give the young people the chance, our young workers, give them the chance to build that capacity. Nice. All right. Thank you so much again for this time today. I'm truly grateful and I look forward to seeing you probably again soon in Unamagi or you're always welcome to come visit us again in Labrador, of course. So you take care. Yes. All right. That'll be awesome. Either, both options are great with me. Miss you guys. All right. Take care. All right. Take care.
Hi, I'm Dr. Jamie Snook, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Co-Management Common Show. Honoring the spirit and intent of agreements with Indigenous peoples is an important form of reconciliation and social justice, and educating ourselves about opportunities with co-management is time well spent. This conversation continues, so please like, share, subscribe, and visit www.comanagement.ca. Join me again next time for another interesting discussion about the co-management of fish and wildlife in Canada and around the world.